One of the thoughts that has come across my mind on a number of occasions has been how I would react if through some strange act of fate I was charged with a crime that I had not committed. And through some malfeasance on the part of of various witnesses who pointed their finger at me and said, yes, he did it, I slipped through our justice system and was sent to prison for a crime I had not committed. I've just tried to imagine how I would react, and I think I know how you would react. As day after day, week after week, year after year, your life wasted away in some terrible prison for a crime you had not committed. It would be difficult not to let rage enter into your emotions. I read just this past week about a Japanese man. His name was Yoshida. And we pick up the story with him on a street beating the living daylights out of somebody, screaming at him, confess, 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 nearly killing the man. To understand this, you need to go back 23 years ago. 23 years ago, two men stood in a court of law in Japan, and their testimony agreed that Yoshida had murdered a man on a deserted road. They had seen him do it. The trouble was, Yoshida was not there. He did not murder the man. He was an honorable man, and he was being framed. For 23 years, burning in him was this rage to get these two men. It didn't take him long to find the first one. And it didn't take many hits before the first one started squealing like a pig. He said, yes, yes, we framed you, but it was my friend that did the killing. He threatened me and I had to lie. It took him 12 months to find the second man. And that's where we pick up the story. He sees this man running down the street. He jumps him with 23 years of pent up emotion and rage and starts beating him. Confess, confess, confess. And finally, as his life is truly threatened, The true culprit confessed. Yoshida brought the evidence back to court. A new trial was opened. His case was retried. He was exonerated. He was an innocent man, but 23 years of his life had been wasted. I suppose that's how most of us would react if we were charged for a crime we had not committed. Rage and anger at those that had done it. This morning we're going to see how The Son of God reacted when he was crucified, when he was accused of a crime he had not committed, how he bore it with dignity, majesty and silence. I guess when we look at our U.S. courts, sometimes we get a little upset because it seems like we bend over backwards to protect those people accused of crimes. And, you know, I'm glad we do that. Because if I were ever accused of a crime, I would want our courts to do everything possible to protect me as an innocent person. And sometimes it seems like we go too far to protect the innocent. However, if you're one of those innocent people, you'll want the courts to go as far as possible. Let me assure you of something. If we can jump back nearly 2,000 years ago 
to the Roman system of justice and the Jewish system of justice, they were no less careful than we are to protect the innocent. They were meticulous in their jurisprudence to make sure that no innocent person was convicted and punished for a crime they had not committed. It involved things, for example, as far as long as a three day period between the time a person was convicted and the time in which they were sentenced, during which time the Sanhedrin for a capital offense would fast during that three day period to make sure before God they had not overreacted. I'll tell you more about that later. But within this system of meticulous justice, the most atrocious crime or the most atrocious trial was conducted. It broke every rule, every safety valve was broken when Jesus went on trial. Today and in future weeks, we're going to look at the trial of Jesus. Let me set the stage. Remember again, it's Thursday night. It's been a busy night. Actually, it's now Friday morning. Thursday night, Jesus had celebrated the Passover dinner. He had predicted his denial by Peter and the disciples. He had prayed in the garden. And in Matthew chapter 26, we see that he was apprehended in the garden. He was met by an army, a small army of nearly a thousand people led by Judas. The Sanhedrin had sent the temple police out, along with a Roman cohort, which measured 600 men. And in verse 56 of Matthew 26, we summed it up last week when it said, And then all the disciples forsook him and fled, just as Jesus had predicted. Now, let me give you an overview of the text. We're going to go from verses 57 to 67. We're going to look at the trial of Jesus, but only part of the trial. There were two trials of Jesus, a Roman trial and a Jewish trial. We will start with the Jewish trial. Both trials had three elements. You're going to see that in the Jewish trial, Jesus was brought before Annas, who is called the high priest, he was then brought before Caiaphas, who is also called the high priest. And then the next morning, chapter 27, verses 1 and 2, he meets before the whole Sanhedrin one more time just after dawn. We'll see those today. And in future weeks, we're going to see the Roman trial. We're going to see he was brought before Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. I've just finished reading a book that was just absolutely Fascinating. It's, a, it's called Pontius Pilate. And it sets the scene in that Roman world for the ten years that Pontius Pilate ruled. And we see how Jesus just keeps coming across his death. As he hears what's going on up north. As he hears about the miracles. As all of these things are brought to Jesus. Are brought before Pilate. And how he reacted. As we look at it this week, we will see just the Jewish trial. Next time, we'll see Pontius Pilate and then Herod Antipas, who ruled in the northern part of the country, and then back to Pilate. Now, let me talk to you just a little bit about the Jewish legal system. This is going to sound like basic law 101 this morning, but you need to understand this if you are going to get the point of this message. Jesus is going to be proven innocent of all charges of sin. There is only going to be one charge that's going to stick on Jesus. He is going to be charged with proclaiming himself to be the son of God. And he never denies that. He accepts that charge. All other charges are proven false. Now, 
In the Jewish system, the Jews carried on their own trials. They were ruled by Rome, as most of the civilized world was during this period of time. And the Romans let them carry out all of the legal work except one, capital punishment. A capital crime had to be brought before the Roman governor. The Jews could take care of everything up to a capital crime. But Rome, under the initiation of Pontius Pilate, by the way, reserved the right to review capital offenses. They were very careful. Now, the people that did the work, the juries, the judges and juries in the Jewish system were called the Sanhedrin. They had lower courts and they had a Supreme Court. In every area where there were 120 or more male heads of households, they had a Sanhedrin. They were composed of 23 men. There were 10 of them throughout the nation. These were, if you will, the lower courts. There was one Sanhedrin, however, that met in Jerusalem. It was called the Great Sanhedrin. It was the final court of appeals. Seventy-one men, elders, chief priests, and scribes sat on that. The 71st member was the high priest. They decided the big trials. Now, as these cases were brought to the Sanhedrin, they were very careful. Let me give you ten safeguards that they had built in, and there were more. One was that no trial could be conducted at night. They didn't want any kangaroo courts. It had to be during daylight. It had to be in a place called the Hall of Hewn Stone, which was in the temple. It couldn't be held in somebody's house, like the house of the high priest. It had to be in the temple. It had to have scribes that writ out or wrote out all of the proceedings of the trial. A third element was that it couldn't be conducted during a feast, especially not during the Passover. A fourth thing is that in a capital offense, three days were necessary before the punishment was meted out. They were so keen in giving mercy to the offended. All of the evidence would be in. The Sanhedrin would agree that the man is guilty. But they would not pronounce judgment until three days had passed, and the middle day they fasted so that their mercy would have a chance to surface. A fifth thing was that the evidence had to be guaranteed by at least two witnesses. They were separated, they were grilled independently, and their stories had to mix, or their stories had to match perfectly. If a witness was proven to be a false witness, they would receive the punishment that they were trying to get for the person on trial. If they were accused of a capital offense and a false witness lied under oath, they would be sentenced to death immediately. We see a sixth thing. False witnesses were punished by death when they gave bad testimony. A seventh, there was a right of self-defense. Somebody had to be there to represent the accused. Number eight, the witness in a capital crime, had to cast the first stone to destroy the person that they had witnessed against. Number nine, they had a Fifth Amendment. They didn't call it that, but nobody could stand and be forced to condemn themselves. No self-incrimination. And then finally, the tenth. The tenth fail-safe mechanism they had. On the day of the judgment, after they've had three days, and the middle day the Sanhedrin has fasted, during that three days, they've looked for further witnesses that might acquit the condemned. 
They called for evidence from anybody that might have some evidence. As they left the hall of hewn stone, as they went to a place called Golgotha, where this crime would be punished, they had a herald or a spokesperson that went in front of this proceeding and he announced that this person has been condemned of such and such crime. If there's anybody, if you know of anybody that has evidence to the contrary, please, please, please let us know. And there was a Roman or there was a Jewish representative at the back of the processional as they went, who kept his eyes glued to one of the upper elevations of the temple, because if anybody came into the temple, into the Sanhedrin with further evidence that this person was innocent, a white flag went up and the man at the back of the procession up to the moment this person died would stop the proceedings if that white flag went up. Why? The Romans and the Jews were, and we'll talk about the Roman system in a couple of weeks, they were so careful not to condemn an innocent man. Having said that, let's see how they did it with great fervor. Verse 57. We're into our new text now. The confrontation. The confrontation. You'll get about six points today. The first one, the confrontation. And those who had laid hold of Jesus, that's that band of a thousand, led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders were assembled. It's about one o'clock in the morning, somewhere between midnight and one o'clock. They had grabbed him in the Garden of Gethsemane. They came back across the brook Kidron, back up the Temple Mount, through the eastern gate, back in to the part of the city where the wealthy lived, and there the high priest had a palace. Now you say, now wait a minute, Rick. I've been reading in John chapter 18, that's a parallel account, and there's a different high priest. Did somebody make a mistake? No, no mistakes. Turn to John 18. Starting with verses 12 12 through 14. John 18, 12. Then the detachment of troops and the captain... And the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. That's in the garden again. And they led him away to Annas first. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, it was Caiaphas who gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Let me take that verse first. Caiaphas said, look. If we don't kill this guy, he's going to start an insurrection and then the Romans are going to come in and they're going to kill all of us. If we lose the peace, the Romans are going to take care of all of us and the people will be destroyed. Now, they eventually were massacred in 70 A.D., more than a million of them. Caiaphas, however, is selling this thing that if we kill him, we can stop this insurrection and we'll all be saved from the Roman legions. Now, you need to understand who this Annas was. Remember, it says he... It says right here, they led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. This guy, if I can use the phrase, and I use it very carefully, was the godfather of the temple. He was, he was the, the, the chief drug lord of the Colombian drug lords, if you will. He was the power behind the corruption. Remember in Scripture, it talks about how Jesus went and drove the money changers out of the temple and all of those that were uh, just using extortion to get people's money in the temple. They called that the bazaars of Annas. Okay, he held the rights to all of the extortioners. He ruled all of the other drug lords. He had been high priest for five or six years, about 20 years ago. 
Now, you're supposed to serve as high priest for life. But when the Romans came in, they insisted that if this guy didn't play ball with them, they would remove him. They removed him. He had five sons. And through the years, he worked it out. So each one of his five sons became high priest. Now we come to Caiaphas, who wasn't a son. He was a son-in-law. He married Annas' only daughter. He got to live in the palace. He got to become high priest. Notice it says high priest that year. Now, they brought Jesus before Annas first. Then down, And skip verses 15 through 18. That involves Simon Peter, and we'll see him next week. Verse 19. The high priest, this is Annas. And by the way, once you were high priest, they always called you high priest. It's sort of like an ex-president. It's still President Reagan. It's still high priest Annas. Then the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. And Jesus answered and said, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I have said. Remember those ten things I mentioned as far as Jewish justice? Every one of those is going to be broken in this trial. Every one of them. Here we start with one of them, self-incrimination. They have to bring a charge. You can't hold a person in America without charging them for a crime, basically. They couldn't bring Jesus in without a crime. And here's the high priest saying, all right, what did you do? What did you do? Jesus said, look, what I said is public record. If you have a charge, lay it on the table. If you don't, let me go free. Annas was caught. He knew it. These people were corrupt, but they knew they had a system in which to work. He had lost face. He was no match for Jesus. He had no response. Verse 22. And when Jesus had said those things or these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, do you answer the high priest like that? That's what mindless people do when they're cornered. Everybody knew from the silence that Annas didn't have a response. And so one of the officers took the palm of his hand and slapped Jesus. Do you talk to the high priest like that? Jesus had a response for that, you'll notice. Jesus answered him, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? In other words, if I said something evil, tell me what it was. And if I've spoken nothing but, spoken nothing but the truth, why do you hold me? Let me go free. Annas had heard enough. He wanted to get rid of this guy. He was going to send him to that young son-in-law of his by the name of Caiaphas. It was the middle of the night. They had no witnesses, no charges. They met in the wrong place. They didn't have scribes there. They didn't have a defense attorney for Jesus. They didn't have anything they needed. He didn't know what to do. Meanwhile, the Sanhedrin had been asked to meet in the palace of Caiaphas. Back to Matthew. And we get to verse 57. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas. Now, they called him the high priest where the scribes and elders were assembled. This is the second point. We've seen the confrontation with Annas. Now the convening of the Sanhedrin, verses 57 and 58. It says they took him to the home of Caiaphas. Now, this has led a lot of people to get mixed up. They say, now, wait a minute. Peter spent the whole time in one courtyard. We don't hear of Peter moving and following this group. Remember, Peter's going to follow this whole procession. What's going on here? You need to understand that this isn't a house. It's a palace. Because in one of the halls of the house, 
you have 71 men assembled for a trial. They're not supposed to be there, but the room was certainly large enough. This was a palace. The palace of the high priest was surrounded by a wall anywhere from two to three stories tall. It was very secure. It was a mini fortress. You would go in through a very locked and very secure gate in through a corridor into a massive courtyard. Because we're going to see in verse 58, it says, but Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest courtyard and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. We had temple police, we had servants, we had all kinds of people gathered in a huge courtyard. Annas and Caiaphas lived in the same house. It's not like you having your in-laws come in to live with you. It's like a palace. You get one wing of the palace, you get another wing, and the other five sons who aren't high priests this year, they get the other wing, certainly spacious enough for everybody. And so all of this is switching wings as Peter is out there in the courtyard. They had assembled the Sanhedrin. They had been on alert. Now, we see the, the conspiracy. By the way, with Peter in the courtyard... He's gathered around a fire, and I'm going to leave him alone this week because we're going to see that next week. So let's just hold off on verse 58. Verses 59 through 61, the conspiracy. We've seen the confrontation, the convening, now the conspiracy. It says in verse 59, Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. That word, false testimony. They're looking for false testimony. This is the Supreme Court. He said, can we go out and find some liars to get this guy convicted? Now, they were sort of in a bind. They were going to grab him after Passover. Judas came running to the chief priest, says, we've got to do it tonight. And so all of these people in their pajamas had probably gathered in the great hall there, and they're ready to try him, and they're looking for witnesses. All right, let's go out and find some good liars, find some false witnesses. What's interesting is verse 60, but found none. What does that mean? It means that 71 brilliant minds, Judas Iscariot, the high priest, the crooks that they were, with all of hell behind them, the brain trust of hell, if you will, were trying to level charges against Jesus that he had broken the law. That's what they were trying to do, to say that this man had broken the law. They couldn't even get a good lie to prove he had broken the law. This is a monumental passage of Scripture. The the very demons from hell and their representatives could not prove a single sin against Jesus. What does that tell you? He was sinless. He was sinless. I mean, if somebody were to say, all right, look, can we find any sin or any breaking of any laws in the life of Rick Cool? I'll tell you something. They'd find some, wouldn't they? Remember Gary Hart's boast? You think I'm into some kind of trouble? Follow me. I'm innocent until somebody followed him. As a person runs for president, the Joe Bidens all of a sudden have their speeches checked and their records in college are checked. Another candidate, they started calculating the date between his marriage and the birth of his first child. They start finding things out like that. What would they do if they checked your record? What would they do if they checked your record? We have so-called Christian leaders on trial. They're in the paper daily. And the deeper they dig, the more garbage they dig up. And these are just honest people trying to find charges. 
Can you imagine if you had dishonest people motivated by the powers of hell? Dig up. You know what they dug up on Jesus? Not a single thing. They found none. Verse 60. Even though many false witnesses came forward, their stories couldn't hold together. Now, these guys were trying to do it the right way, even though they had broken all the rules. They found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward. Two guys that said, hey, we think we've got something here. And they gave their case. And they said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it up in three days. Now, first of all, he didn't say that. Notice what they said. This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. You watch that as I read what Jesus said from John 2:19. Don't turn there. I'll read it and you compare. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He didn't say destroy the temple of God or I am able. I mean, they got the story wrong. And when we read Mark's account of the other witness, his story didn't agree with the first one. They had nothing. And Caiaphas knew it. Caiaphas knew it. I can hear somebody from the back hollering out. And we know that John and Peter both went with this crowd. Peter was outside. I've got a feeling John was inside. I've got that feeling. I can almost hear from the back somebody hollering out, he didn't say that. He was talking about his body. Everybody that was there knows that. That's a lie. I can hear that going on. And the murmurs run through the crowd. They don't have a charge. Verse 42, we see the condemnation. And the high priest arose and said to him, he's, he's upset. I mean, this thing was supposed to go very smoothly. They can't get a charge against him. Do you answer nothing? Jesus is sitting there. He's not saying, I didn't say that. He's sitting there, silent. Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? What have you done wrong, Jesus? But Jesus kept silent. Because he hadn't done anything wrong. And the high priest answered and said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God, this is the condemnation. He used a special oath that every Jew was required to respond to. I adjure you in the name or by the living God, answer this question. Now, we're going to see a little bit later that Peter swore in the name of the living God that he didn't know Jesus. Jesus is asked right now, in the name of the living God, are you the Son of God. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you God himself? Now, that's the issue. That's what we're getting down to. These guys were threatened by him. But the issue that gnawed at everybody is, what if this guy really is the Son of God? That's the issue that gnawed at Pilate. Uh, we're going to hear all kinds of stuff about Pilate. Tradition has it that his wife and possibly Pilate himself became believers Years later, and we'll go into some of that tradition and some of the things we see. That was the issue that gnawed him, gnawed at them. Are you the son of God? Now, let me tell you something. Why was Jesus crucified? Not because of any charges brought against him. They couldn't find a charge. There's only one charge. This man claims to be the son of God. 
That was the charge. They condemned him on that basis. Verse 64. It is as you said. Mark 14 starts it out in verse 62. I am the name of God again. He starts out, I am. In other words, I am God. I am God. That's their name for God. It is as you said, nevertheless, I say to you, and listen to this, he finally speaks. Hereafter, you, and I can see him pointing right at Caiaphas. I say to you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He said, I am God, and hereafter you will see me again, Caiaphas and your dear friends, but I'll be coming in power. I am going to be seated at the right hand of God. He was quoting parts of that from Daniel. And they knew that prophecy in Daniel referred to God himself. And here's Jesus saying, I am God. Why was Jesus crucified? Because he claimed to be God. It was not because he had broken a law. If there ever was a person that lived without breaking a law, it was Jesus. He did live a, a sinless life. He never broke the law, whether it was regarding taxation. He never sinned. They killed him because he claimed to be God. Those Jehovah's Witnesses knocking at your door. Now, you can take them to a multitude of passages, but this is one of them. Why did they crucify Jesus? Because he claimed to be God. And if they view him as an honest, honorable man, they've either got to accept his testimony here or call him a liar, and that destroys the rest of what they call theology. Justice Gray, who was a former, who used to be a member of the Supreme Court, a Supreme Court justice, once said to a man that had appeared before him in a lower court, this man had gotten out of a conviction. And Gray said, look, I know you're innocent, or I know you're guilty, and you know you're guilty. He weaseled out on a technicality. Somebody blew it. He said, I know that you are guilty, and you know it. And I wished you to remember that one day you will stand before a better and wiser judge and that there you will be dealt with according to justice and not according to the law. Jesus is saying, look, Caiaphas, one of these days you're going to get a fair trial. This is a kangaroo court, Caiaphas, but someday you're going to stand in front of a fair judge and that's going to be me. And you're going to be found guilty as charged. Now, the conclusion, the fifth point, the conclusion, verses 65 through 66. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. He's saying, now look, you have heard his blasphemy. I don't need witnesses. I've got 70 of them. He stood before you and blasphemed. What did he do to blaspheme? He claimed to be God. That's plain and simple. He said, we don't need witnesses. There are 71 of us. We have heard it. And I can just see him going crazy as he rips his clothes. He needed to have a charge because Jesus had to be brought before Pontius Pilate. And they knew Pontius Pilate was a fair man. And that the Roman law demanded that they have a solid case for a capital crime. They said, finally, we have him. Now, this whole thing is illegal. It's all illegal. They're going to reconvene the next morning, right after dawn, in the hall of the hewn stone, so that they can go ahead and say, well, we convicted him during the daylight hours in the right place. 
It was still the wrong time. It was during the Feast of the Passover and everything else had been violated. But they came back together the next morning so they could at least say it's, it's somewhat legal. It was illegal all the way through. They asked for a verdict. What do you think? And they answered and said, he is deserving of death. They used to go around starting with the youngest member, the newest member of the Sanhedrin, and he would cast the first judgment all the way to the gray heads on the other side. And they said, he is guilty. Now, the conduct, the final part, the conduct of the mob. Then they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? I mean, this is the ultimate insult would be to spit upon somebody in that culture. If you were to go to, even today to the area where the tomb of Absalom is, they hated Absalom because of what he did against King David. They used to spit upon his grave, upon his tomb. They still do that today. They walk by and uh, 3,000 years later, they're still spitting upon the tomb of Absalom. The ultimate form of put down. They pulled his robe over his head. And they started beating him with their fist, saying, all right, prophet, you're the Christ, the anointed one. Tell us who's hitting you. Now, you've got to remember something. This is the Supreme Court of the land. They've gone out of their minds. They've turned into a mob. Now, let me summarize all of this. They're going to meet the next morning, Matthew 27, 1 and 2. And when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. All right, come on, guys. We meet in the morning. Soon as the sun's up, let's take another verdict. Okay, he's guilty. They already knew the sentence. The sentence was death. They couldn't find a crime, however. They needed a crime. And verse 2, and when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. And we'll see that in several weeks. The keys, there are several keys to this and, and several thoughts. It's a narrative. When we're reading a, a narrative account, it's a historical event. And you, and you have to sort of grow up and say, where does the theology come in here? There's lots of theology in here. Number one, Jesus was proven sinless by his very enemies, proven sinless by his very enemies. That speaks marvelously to me. As I prepared to open our study of the book of James, Billy Graham was one asked, once asked, what one of his greatest proofs for the resurrection and the deity of Jesus Christ was, he said, the half-brother of Jesus by the name of James. Because James didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. And James was antagonistic toward his older brother. But one day when James saw the resurrected Lord, he believed and became a leader in the Jerusalem church. If anybody recognized the resurrected Lord, it was his own half-brother. And it changed his heart. There are all kinds of evidences that jump out at us in Scripture. And here's one of them. Hell's brain trust could not find a single sin in the life of Jesus. The only thing they could say is this man claims to be God. And Jesus was about to prove that he was. He was innocent of all charges. In your life, let me just issue a challenge. Is there sin in your life? I mean, if we turn the Sanhedrin loose on you, what would we find? If I could talk to your wife and say, all right, now look. If we put your wife on the stand and said under oath, tell us. Tell us about your husband's life. We see certain things, but what's he really like? 
Oh, I, I, I've sat down with wives that have come and talked to me and said, oh, you don't know my husband. You've never seen the real him. And then later I got to see the real him. And it's frightening. People that stand on Sunday morning and look so clean and so glossy and so smiley for Christ, they go home and their life is a sewer full of sin. But those that are close to them know that. Your kids know if there's sin in your home. Your friends know. The guys and gals at work know what your life is really like. If we were to put them on the stand, what would they discover? We would discover that there's sin in your life. In the life of Jesus, there was none. We also see that he was accused of blasphemy. They said the man blasphemes because he claims to be God, and he isn't. I'm reminded of the story of two non-believers. They were infidels. They hated Christianity. And they were waiting for a train a number of years ago. And one of them, by the name of Ingersoll, said to the other, Lou Wallace, You're such a brilliant writer and investigator. Why don't we once and for all debunk this Christianity business? Let's go ahead and put the evidence together that proves Jesus was a liar and Jesus was just a man. They set out with one of the most carefully designed studies of the life of Jesus possible. And you know what happened? The guy that wrote the book, Lou Wallace, he got saved from his studies. The book turned out to be The Life of Christ. We call it Ben-Hur. And in the novel, Ben-Hur, woven through there, we see Jesus. And Wallace proudly proclaims, I have reviewed all of the evidence. Surely, truly, this man, as Wallace once said, verily, this man was the Son of God. Others have tried. We look at one of the great apologists in the modern church, a guy by the name of Josh McDowell and, and all of the books he puts out, evidence books, evidence books, evidence that demands a verdict, one of his classics. He set out as a university student to prove that Jesus was not the Son of God. There was no resurrection. He came to the same conclusion that Lou Wallace came to. Truly or verily, this was the Son of God, and his evidence is to Establish the case and show those that doubt that they don't have a case. The charge he claimed to be God. The evidence, when he arose three days later, he proved he was God. Notice also that Jesus bore all of this in silence. I think of how we as Christians like to scream and squawk whenever we're accused of anything that's wrong. I guess the more visible you are publicly, the more accusations you get. I probably get more accusations thrown against me than, than anybody else in this congregation. I'll have people call and say, oh, we heard this terrible heresy that you're propagating. And, ah, oh, gee, I said, just what I need to hear. What is the heresy? We said, oh, you spoke on this and that, and this was recorded and that was recorded. I said, boy, that is a terrible heresy. I agree. I've never even spoken on it, however, and I've never been where it was spoken. And, she, and the lady said, oh, I've got to investigate. And about ten minutes later, I got one of the most apologetic phone calls I've ever gotten. They said, it wasn't you, it was somebody else with a name that sounds very similar to yours. I said, I'm glad to hear that, and I'm glad you're calling. But it's happened numerous times. I heard that Pastor Cool said this and that and so and so. Oh, that, that hurts, doesn't it? 
I've learned sometimes when you face accusation and you get accused of things and I get accused of things, Jesus bore it in silence. I remember first Peter two, starting with verse 19. Let me just read it to you. For this is commendable if because of conscience, conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongly. This is commendable if you suffer wrongly because of your conscience toward God. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? I mean, what credit is to you when you are punished because you've done wrong? I mean, you deserve it. But when you do good and suffer for it, when you do good and suffer for it, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. When you do good and you still suffer, that's what God appreciates. You bear it in silence. Verse 21, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps who committed no sin nor was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. He who or who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by those stripes you were healed. Let me close with a poem. Why was he silent? Why could he hang there? Why could he suffer these abuses? Why could he be stricken by these despicable soldiers and temple police and remain silent? Why is he silent when a word would slay his accusers all? Why does he meekly bear their taunts when angels wait his call? He was made sin. My sin he bore upon the accursed tree. And sin hath no defense to make. His silence was for me. Did he sin? No. Was he bearing sin as he hung on the tree? He bore my sin. And he did bear sin, but it wasn't his own. It was for me. If you're here this morning, the principal message for you, if you have never accepted Jesus as Savior, is that he died for you and you need him as your Savior. He was not just a good man. He was and is and always shall be the son of the living God. And you need him as your savior. That's why he, with silence, marched toward the cross. For those of us that are Christians, maybe you needed to be reminded that not even Satan could show a sin in the impeccably sinless life of Jesus, the savior. He could not sin. He was God. He did not sin. He was God. He never shall sin. He was God. Yet he bore our sins. That's why his sacrifice was sufficient. The sinless died for the sinful. If you're here this morning and you need Jesus, please come and see us right after this service. We'll be up front and we'd like to minister to you. Let's pray just before we sing a song. Father, I pray now that you might... Seal these words to our hearts. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, help us to remember what he did and what he shall do for us. And if there's somebody here that still needs to claim him as Savior, help them to meet us so we can share with them. Lord, we love your Son. We love you. Thank you for sending him to die for us. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.